Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 99, being recorded on Thursday, August 31st, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, you know what? I got 99 problems, and our podcast ain't one. I'm sorry to hear about your other problems, but I'm super excited. Uh, We're about to have the Y2K of our podcast. I know. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens when we go triple digits. This whole thing could fall apart on us. My naming conventions for our audio files, the way I upload to iTunes, like everything's going to break. Don't tell me that. I'm I'm actually legit worried now. I I didn't mean to make you nervous. I've actually, I programmed everything at three three digits. So until we get to a thousand, we're good. That'll be cool. Cool. Well, you have been on the road as per usual, and I think you were most recently up in Boston. Tell us what's going on in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been uh, traveling a lot. I'll be on the road, I think, almost every day this month. Um, And uh, I was in Boston this morning and yesterday, uh, which is a great retail city. Uh, I was meeting with a couple of clients and some of my my colleagues. Uh, But one store in particular I had been meaning to get to that I finally got to is the Ministry of Supply flagship in Boston. Um, And this is an apparel retailer. And what's particularly cool is they have a a make-on-demand wool blazer machine in the store. So you you configure and order your blazer, and they literally knit it in the store on demand. So it's kind of you know, which is definitely a uh, a potential potential future evolution for a lot of retail is kind of you know, uh, uh, make to order uh, personalized products at mass scale and and pushing manufacturing out to the edge and all these things and you know, in in the distant future we might have a lot of the, this manufacturing capability in our homes, but uh, for many years before we have that it'll make sense to be putting it into retail store. So it's, I just think it's a kind of interesting concept to watch. And I saw them sell a couple sweaters while I was there and, uh, definitely not a perfect experience at the moment. I think it takes about three hours to knock out one of these sweaters. So you're, you're ordering it, you're leaving the store to do some more shopping and then coming back later that day to pick it up. Very cool. So you don't just stand there and robots kind of sew it onto you, uh, Westworld style or that's not how it works. That would be awesome. Uh, that will be a future version. No, it's a pretty big machine that looks like a fancy 3D printer. It's pretty funny, fun to watch. Um, and what's interesting, you'd almost expect that the pro- like that it would be a little gimmicky and that the product wouldn't be that good. But it's actually it's a stylish wool blazer, and it's like a it the the yarns are like high tech wool. It's like an athletic performance wool, so it's like it's intended to breathe and wick, and and uh, you know it, it's it's meant to be a, a convenient travel garment that that uh, looks stylish, but but uh, doesn't make you too hot and and sweaty. Cool. How do they get your body measurements with the Connect kind of a thing? Uh, no, so they are not doing like a a three D scanner for the body measurements. Uh, they they measure you the old fashioned way with a a tape system. Um, and, but one of the disappointments is 
they're not custom making the sizes yet. So they do they measure you, but they measure you to fi- figure out which of the standard sizes they'll make you. So you can custom pick the colors um, and some options and things like that. But you can't, for example, say I want two more inches in the in the chest or or shorter sleeves or something like that, which seems like a obvious thing you'd want and expect in a made to order garment. Maybe there's some complexity around like I think it's it kind of fit right and that kind of stuff. I think it's <laughs> it's early. Like I think this is intended to be a permanent machine. There's some other versions. Adidas has done one of these with sweaters. And it was sort of a pop-up shop in Berlin for a couple months. This is intended to be a permanent fixture in the store. Um, but I think, you know, we're seeing generation one of the experience. And I think they've said that they're, they're you know, going to see what customer adoption is like and, and eventually expand to make to order sizes. Very cool. Uh, well, uh, thanks for the trip report. And uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is it's uh, tomorrow uh, is Force Friday. And for this is like a Star Wars insider thing. But before they do the movies, the first wave of merchandise comes out, and that's called Force Friday. So I'm actually making a huge sacrifice. I am foregoing Midnight Madness for Force Friday to be on the podcast here tonight for our listeners. So that's how much I care about our listeners, Jason. I'm willing to give up a little bit of Star Wars action. I'm super grateful. I hope you don't miss anything super valuable by not being there right at midnight. But I've actually, I feel like there have been a lot of things pulling on your, uh, testing your dedication to the podcast. Um, is that, I don't know if our listeners are aware of this, but we, we actually had to delay the recording of last week's podcast because you were a celebrity appearing on the Today Show. I wouldn't say I was a celebrity. It was just kind of one of those, uh, you know, things aligned much like an eclipse. And uh, I was I was able to be on the Today Show. It was kind of fun. So got to talk about uh, it's funny. I'm sure you've done these things where you talk for 30 minutes about something and they use like a 10 second snippet. But uh, I talked a lot about uh, and we'll talk about it later on the show. The, the tie-up between Walmart and Google. So um, they were looking for experts, couldn't find anyone. I guess you were traveling, and uh, they ended up uh, finding me. So, And I was the one guy that answered his phone at like 9.30 at night. It's funny. They, they actually called me first, and they had me send a picture. And then they got the picture and said, you know what? You have a face for podcasts. We're going with Wingo. But a bum What's funny, the uh, the only wall we had at Channel Visor that had the logo where the camera could fit and all is an orange wall, and it made me look like a Oompa Loompa, so that was exciting. I'm glad you noticed that because I did, but I, I felt I didn't want to bring it up unless you. <laughs> Everyone thinks I have like spray-on tan, but that that's not the case. Yeah, it's I have to be like, honest. I feel like that was shoddy work on the cameraman. Like, I, I feel like they could have fixed that. Well, you know, they don't have the professional uh, crew like we do here at the Jason and Scott show. Exactly. The audio engineer on the Jason and Scott show would never let you sound orange. Cool. Uh, A couple other quick things before we get into it. The – as we're recording this, we found out today that September 12th is the big day when Apple's going to announce something, which we all know is going to be the iPhone 8. So that's going to be exciting. And I'm sure there will be some uh, e-commerce implications. We have a couple of things tonight we'll talk about. Um, and then I'm going to Code Commerce on September 13 to 14, really just as a spectator to kind of look and see what they're doing. Uh, I'm super excited. They're doing a tour of a Prime Now facility. So I look forward to reporting back to listeners on, on what I see there. And if any listeners are at that event and want to connect, uh, shoot me a note uh, at, uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever. Uh, and it's adorable that you think you're going to go there without me because I, of course, will be the one sitting next to you. 
boom, I wasn't sure if you're going to make it. That's exciting. I am. I am having to take a red eye from a, a client obligation on the West Coast, so I might be a little sleepy, but hopefully there there will be a Starbucks in Manhattan that I'll be able to find. I'll be waiting there with a Trenta for you so that you're you're ready to get refueled and, and hit, hit the ground running. I totally appreciate it. Uh, side note on the world's best planned obsolescence, like I think, you know, everyone's expecting they're going to announce an iPhone 7S, which might be available very soon after the announcement. And the iPhone 8, that's going to be probably a pretty constrained product. It might not be available for a month or two um, after the announcement, at least. That's the sort of common speculation. And there's also a lot of speculation that they're going to launch a new Apple Watch at the event. And so they... Apple actually solved a problem for me. You know, I, I was going to be sad because I'm going to want the aid, and that means I'm going to have to delay gratification and wait to get it. Um, but uh, on the day they announced the announcement, the announced the announcement, yeah, um, I got off the plane and my Apple Watch exploded. Like Ooh, the screen, like uh, the screen, yeah, flew, like, not in an actual exothermic explosion, but the screen flew off. Um, so now I have a legitimate reason to buy the Apple Watch. So that'll that'll achieve uh, fulfill my my short term gratification, and then the the iPhone eight will be my longer term one, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So Elon Musk doesn't call them explosions; they're violent release of uh, uh, atoms. So that's what your watch did. Yes, uh, not as violent as some of his rockets, thankfully. <laughs> Well, Jason, this time of year between summer and kind of the fall is the crazy time in the world of digital retail because everyone's pushing out all the things they've been working at out, out for the you know since last holiday and getting ready for this holiday season. And true to fashion, it's been a crazy busy news week. So uh, let's jump into it. And then one thing for listeners to uh, stay for is we have a new segment today. It's called Digital Retail Newsmakers and that will follow a short update on the news. And the first thing we want to cover tonight is Amazon news. Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so the uh, the first thing uh, that we have to cover here is we are are kind of deep into this Whole Foods Amazon uh, integration. So uh, the sequence was uh, Thursday last week, which was I believe the twenty third or twenty fourth. Uh, Amazon sent out a press release saying uh, we have received uh, the the transaction is going to close on Monday, uh, and here's some of the things we're going to do and. That release itself really set the not only the internet on fire, but also the stocks of the grocery companies. So uh, I saw that several of the main grocery companies were down eight uh, percent, and you know I, I thought it was funny because when they the, in the press release there was three or four bullets, and it was almost a bullet for bullet uh, list of the things you and I predicted on our Whole Foods uh, deep dive that we did right after the announcement, the the, the quick take. So uh, pat on the back to us because I think we got most of this stuff right. Yeah, yeah, I felt pretty good. And then one thing we we did talk a little bit about on the show, but the other thing, a ton of people were predicting that there would be a lot of um, regulatory impediments and that that would slow it down and that the government was going to look at it really closely. And I think both you and I discussed on the show and then did a bunch of press interviews where we, we said that that was silly and that, that this was going to not have any antitrust issues whatsoever. And sure enough, it it, it got very fast approval. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so the day one activities were, were pretty impressive. Were you able to pop into a Whole Foods on day one? I was, and yeah, uh, impressive is definitely the word. Um, the 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 speed at which they got so much done um, is truly impressive and scary to a lot of the folks that have to make a living competing against them. Yeah, the um, so. The, the biggest one is price cuts. So they uh, picked some of the most popular items and did some pretty substantial price cuts and, and then kind of said more to come. And this is interesting. You know, you're, you're starting to see this kind of, uh, you know, you hear this whole fake news and the, how the news media covers things and the political side of things. But we're starting to see it in e-commerce where, uh, you know, I saw some people report as much as 40 percent off and, you know, what they had done is just really kind of found the things that had been discounted and then did an average. So that was one way of looking at it. Uh, and then the the most conservative uh, article I read said that it was only like 1%. And what this person did is they took like every SKU in the store <laughs> and, uh, you know, including like the, you know, the 50 to 100 top sellers. And then they just kind of looked at the math that way. Uh, and that, that one was kind of the – it's interesting because it was clearly designed to get the worst result. And it basically said, well – you know, the prices haven't changed more than 1%. We checked 10,000 items. And so I thought that was funny that clearly they, they either had absolutely no idea how commerce works or they were just trying to prove a point that it wasn't that big of a discount. Yeah. I mean, and it, it does go like there, there's an age old problem with like tracking prices and, you know, everyone has a different basket of goods and, and, you know, every basket is going to have a a different outcome. And so I, you know, the most interesting studies are the ones that like pick a consistent basket of goods over a long period of time. And then you can see, see trends. Um, but, you know, I just have to say like the, the fact that they got prices changed at all um, in my mind was super impressive. And they're, they're brilliant about milking those price changes for, for a huge amount of PR. Um, but just in general, they got a bunch of Amazon signage up in the stores they got a display in every store that was merchandised with a bunch of echoes that were for sale. Um, and, you know, they, they, they change prices on, you know, a, a hundred items that are, you know, likely price sensitive items that, that people are paying attention to and generated a bunch of media that prices are lower in Whole Foods, which is going to drive a bunch of extra traffic to Whole Foods, whether those customers' particular baskets are lower or not. So you, you look at all that that they got done on the first day that they took control of the store, and you go, you know, man, in a, a traditional grocery store, that list of activities would take nine months to deploy. Yeah, and it, it goes even deeper. So when the arrow kind of points from Whole Foods to Amazon, so the things I saw, they had, you know, uh, a really good selection of Whole Food private label, and that's called uh, – uh, 365. Whole 63. Yeah, there's another word in there, but 365. Uh, and uh, so that was on Prime Now. It was promoted, categorized, and you know the pricing seemed to be pretty aggressive. I didn't check exactly to the store, but it seemed to match the, the couple of things I saw. Uh, on main Amazon, you had some things. Um, so that, that was also impressive uh, that they got that done so quickly. Yep, absolutely. They're, they are just operating at a different speed than everyone else. And, and, uh, that you know should should really be a wake up call if if uh, you're you're planning to compete with them. 
Yeah. The the other thing in the announcement that I thought we had talked about that a lot of people poo-pooed, but um, is definitely happening. Well, I guess two things. So number one, they're kind of, it's not a day one thing because there's an integration, uh, uh, but Am- Amazon Prime will become the Whole Food Customer Reward Program. Uh, and then I know folks that have gone in and chatted and heard from cashiers that there will be a, an overall Prime discount to your entire basket. Um, one cashier said 10%. I, you know, have no idea how they're going to verify your Prime. You know, I imagine maybe a mobile app or something, but that's going to be interesting to watch roll out. And then the other one that uh, you know is interesting, and, and you and I talked about this kind of being able to. Uh, I think a lot of people are really obsessed with this. Well, are they going to just ship? Is it going to become a shipping station and this kind of thing? Uh, and actually, the reverse was announced, where Amazon's going to put lockers in there. So if you're going to Whole Foods, you have some Amazon returns. You bring them with you. Uh, you just throw them in a locker, and now you've saved yourself a trip to the UPS store or whatever it is you need to drop those off. Yeah, yeah, no, a bunch of uh, uh, crazy things on day one, and I'm sure we've we've only seen the first wave of uh, interesting integration. So it's it's going to definitely be a fun one to watch. Yeah, and then um, continuing on the Amazon news, one one tidbit I saw, uh, we've talked about this on the show a fair amount, where you know I I think the Amazon ad kind of opportunity is way bigger than people realize. And there's a lot going on there. So there was an article in Digiday where uh, they talked about uh, Amazon has really kind of opened up in, within the the Amazon marketing group, AMG and AMS, uh, a lot of APIs that allow for more programmatic bidding. So as you know, uh, being in the ad industry yourself, the, you know, the, uh, the biggest advertisers have these pretty complex things they want to do. They want total control. They want to be able to programmatically do things. Uh, the first iteration of the Amazon APIs would basically say, or, or Amazon's ad technology basically said, uh, Mr. Advertiser, that's great, but here's our little system, this tool we've built. You're going to have to use it yourself. And that really kind of delayed adoption. So now when it comes to things like uh, the ability to spin up uh, retargeting campaigns, display ad campaigns, and then search programmatic search kind of things, um, they have APIs out there now that they are pretty actively getting into the hands of advertisers, which I imagine is part of a Q4 push to, to really kind of dramatically grow that business. Um, so, so that's pretty interesting. And I, I still think that's probably the most underappreciated kind of what could be another multi-billion dollar pillar for Amazon is, is the, the Amazon ad technology. For sure. Uh, another interesting Amazon announcement, um, partly because of the irony is, uh, that they announced their, uh, a new fulfillment center that they are opening and the location is quite interesting because, they are taking over a 900,000-square-foot mall in Randall, Ohio. So this is one of the very first um, indoor regional malls um, that closed back in 2005. And, you know, there's lots of talk in the Mulligan world about, you know, what, how you repurpose these malls and what new use cases do you have um, and, you know, what's the assortment of tenants that you put in there when, when retail goes away. And, you know, surprise, here's a new answer. We're turning the whole mall into a fulfillment center. Yeah. You think they really turn it into a fulfillment? I kind of envision them having to bulldoze it, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, sorry, the location. Yeah. I, uh, okay. I think the, I think Amazon's fulfillment centers are highly optimized. I don't, I don't imagine they would reuse the space. Yeah. Okay. And then everyone called it like a huge uh, fulfillment center. And I think it's going to be 800,000 square feet, which 
Amazon's building them at like 1.5 to 1.9 now. So it's actually a small fulfillment center for Amazon. Yeah. But I mean, to put that inside, that's a very typical sized, you know, uh, regional mall. Um, and so to your point, like a regional mall is a small Amazon fulfillment center. Yeah. Cool. And then, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because there'll probably be a lot of jobs inside of there, too. So I don't know. I, uh, I think they announced these days I want- 2,000 people on day one. Yeah, one of these days I want to do the math of kind of come up with a conversion rate for every dollar you lose in retail and, you know, how many employees is that? And then what's it look like over at Amazon? I, I think that would be a, a fun exercise. We'll do a deep dive on it. Awesome. Uh, there's a lot of uh, good dialogue around the trends in, in retail hiring and what happens with, you know, e-commerce jobs go up as, as brick and mortar jobs go down and all those sorts of things. So that'd be a great thing to deep dive on. Another quick hit on Amazon, uh, Comscore put out a pretty interesting chart, uh, and we'll put it in the show notes. And what they did is they did one of their Comscore studies with millennials, and they found that, shocker, uh, Amazon is the number one app with millennials. Uh, and they asked a pretty interesting series of questions like, you know, what app would it be most hard to live without? And Amazon came out on top of that. Uh, and uh, another interesting factoid on that is, you know, you had Amazon at number one, then you had some social media stuff. Google was in there, but it, it's kind of you know got a third the size of of, of Amazon. Um, it's just another one of these data points that kind of shows that as people, you know. A, Amazon has become the de facto kind of product search that, that people look for. Uh, and then B, as people look for products, they are not really going to Google anymore. They're going to Amazon. Yep. And, uh, you know, it, it that isn't surprising. I've just done a bunch of consumer research on behalf of, of some clients. And, you know, one of the huge takeaways is is Amazon is just simply becoming a, a loved brand. And, um you know, they're, they're an important part of the consumer's life. They're not just a place to get stuff. So uh, it, it makes perfect sense that their app uh, would be the, the sticky one at the top of the heap. Um, I think there's also a lot of interesting non-Amazon news this week. Uh, one of my favorites is there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week talking about um, citing Warren Buffett and talking about uh, retail and uh, brands being on a collision course. And this was uh, super exciting for me because I have been, uh, that that is slide one in my my uh, retail trends presentation for the last six months. So when uh, Warren Buffett uh, agrees with me, it's one of the rare occasions when I, I feel like I'm probably onto something. Cool. Did Warren call you for uh, advice on this? Uh, he did not. Um, but essentially, like the the... The spin here is uh, retailers and brands have always been frenemies, um, that retailers have been, you know, trying to create their own private label brands um, forever. But, the, you know, a lot of the more recent trends are that the, the stigma around private labels is going away and customers are much more happily adopting them. And uh, as a result, uh, national brands are losing their equities are losing their equity, you know, stores are all getting consolidated. So the retailers have more power. And from Warren's position, who owns a lot of CPGs, um, you know, you know, I think he's saying that the retail and brands are on a collision course and the retailers are winning, um, which, which I, I, I certainly think is, is uh, possible in one sense. I think the interesting, interesting thing, we talk a lot like, these products retailers are making are no longer private labels. Like they're, they're national brands. Um, the, 
you know, Kirkland is the best selling, uh, you know, sells more on Amazon than they do on on Costco. Right. Like that's a that's a brand. It's not a, a private label for Costco. And, you know, that the Amazon Echo uh, is, is certainly not a private label product. Like it's it's the market leading, uh, you know, best ecosystem product in its space. Um, so I, I certainly think that the trend is true. I think it's beyond just private labels. Um, but one of the interesting subtext under this is that this article kind of echoed a lot of articles that have been in the news this this week. Um, the uh, one one of uh, my competitors in the space, WPP, announced um, sort of a soft revenue quarter, and you know pe- people are making a lot of uh, uh, conversation around, hey, is advertising or digital advertising? dying or weighing. It looks like these big, big uh, ad agency holding companies are, are starting to see soft, soft sales. So, you know, a lot of people that care about me are asking, uh, uh, you know, if my career is in jeopardy. Um, and I, I do think that that we're seeing those kind th- those uh, digital ads really start to wane, like the, the what I call interrupt driven advertising, like interrupting what someone wants to see in order to, you know, uh, force feed them this advertisement just is a decreasingly uh, effective tactic. And it's the the analog versions are less effective and the digital versions are less effective. And I think, uh, you know, our friend Scott Galloway, like he, he calls advertising is increasingly becoming a tax that poor people pay. And he talks about all the 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 rapidly adopted ways that more affluent people are paying to avoid ads and you you get your your media from Netflix without ads and you you pay for ad blockers and you pay for subscriptions to your newspaper to get it without ads um and so i feel like this traditional uh interrupt driven advertising is sort of dying and you know so agencies like mine are having to reinvent themselves to serve customers in ways other than advertising and and of course the the particular company I work for doesn't really do that kind of advertising, so so it doesn't particularly hurt us. Um, but the big article that came out that really triggered all this was about a week ago, and it was Mark Pritchard, who's the chief customer officer at P&G, and he had announced that um, they had really concluded that digital advertising wasn't working and they were, they were going to cut at least $100 million of their digital ad spend because it wasn't effective. And that's interesting because... I, I do think there's a, a, a strong trend towards um, eliminating some of this, this interrupt-driven advertising, but I don't think that's the whole story of Procter & Gamble. Um, Procter & Gamble has some, some, some serious activist investors that are kind of in their shorts right now, and you know there's a lot of pressure on, on them to cut costs. And it really looks to me like um, they, they just did a brain-dead analysis of some of their marketing activities and are trying to justify the fact that they're having to significantly curtail their spending. So, you know, they're, they're, they're doing, like, kind of brain-dead last-click attribution um, on, a, on a, you know, a, a whole bunch of marketing spend and just saying, hey, hey, we, you know, we don't anticipate sales are going to significantly go down when we, when we stop spending this, this $100 million. Um, but it you know, uh, it, it really kind of doesn't feel like they, they've done a very detailed analysis on how, you know, how the, if and how that media is or could be influencing, uh, sales in their wholesale partners. And, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they just seem really rudimentary on the metrics. Mark, Mark is like one of the most powerful guys in advertising and he spends all his time 
talking about uh, a metric called visibility, like whether or not you can just see an ad. And while it's super important that 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 metric be right, it seems like someone about 32 levels below Mark should be focused on that. And someone at Mark's level should be a lot more focused on how can our marketing tactics drive more profit per human? And, you know, it just seems like like Proctor has kind of lost lost sight of of that kind of view on on their digital marketing spend. Some of the articles are interesting because I think um, so Buffett and then also one of Sam Walton's descendants have sold quite a bit of Walmart stock. And it's it's kind of confusing because the articles kind of tie them together. But like you can tell the, the two events have happened separately. And Warren Buffett's not really saying the reason I'm selling Walmart stock is because of this battle of between brands and retailers. But um, but it's interesting, too, because he's he's kind of. With his wallet, he's buying brands and selling retailers, but then he's kind of saying that he thinks retailers are winning that battle. Um, what's your, what, yeah. what's kind of your view on that? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I agree. Uh, he he, uh, and I'm a less sophisticated investor than you, but part of me feels like he has a very disciplined investment strategy um, that you know is based on value investing, and so you know in a market where. Um, the CPGs are losing power to the retailers. Are the retailer stocks becoming, um, you know, less likely to meet his value criteria? And does he feel like if he can pick the the subset of winners amongst the CPGs, that those are potentially better better value investments, and so you know, better fit his his particular uh, investment uh, profile? I don't know if that's true or not. I was I'm, that's entirely speculation on my part. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. It's kind of a little confusing the way they time together, but they're not really meant to be together. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be an interesting space to to keep watching. I, I, I think we've talked on the show. It's going to be increasingly hard to make a living selling other people's stuff. And so what you just are going to see is, you know, re- retailers are going to start looking a lot more like brands and brands, you know, aren't going to have that retail distribution. So they're going to have to start uh, selling direct to consumers. And so they're going to start looking more like retailers. So I definitely when we say collision course, I think the two businesses are going to, you know, start looking a lot more the same than different as, as uh, we progress. Yeah, uh, I'm just glad we have a little break from the Molly Geddon articles. It was getting kind of a, a little old. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't think we we have a bunch of the data points, but like uh, a, a bunch of retailers had a, had a surprisingly good uh, uh, earnings uh, quarter this year. So there were uh, a bunch of companies kind of surprised us with some beats, even if their their future outlooks weren't particularly promising. Yeah, I think Best Buy actually had a quite a strong quarter and surprised Wall Street even. Yeah, and and again though, like had caution that that wasn't the new normal, and then their stock went way down despite the fact they had a big beat. Yeah, uh, I mentioned it at the top of the show with the Today Show kind of a little blurb there, but the uh, the other big news in e-commerce was Walmart and Google really kind of deeply partnering to effectively take on Amazon, and um, yeah, I think. I think it's early to call this one, but what's really interesting in this story to me is the whole, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, you know, here's two companies that have never really had, you know, an alliance I'm aware of other than I'm sure Walmart's a large Google advertiser and that kind of thing, um, really kind of aligning and saying, hey, you know, we need to create a counter to this this Amazon kind of behemoth that's growing um, and and figure out what we can do there. Uh it's interesting too because Google has always played this kind of you know we're neutral we just send traffic to all the different retailers we don't have a favorite retailer um, but it's starting to sound like Walmart is one of their favorite retailers. 
Yeah. And it, I mean, you know, you think of it like it's, it's increasing in the case that Amazon's big competitors are are these platform ecosystems more so than a than other retailers. And so, you know, that that puts them much more at odds with Google and Facebook than it does Walmart. So it's interesting, you know, uh, Google and, and Facebook have some monetization problems versus Amazon's model. And so, you know, Google plus Walmart feels like a more viable competitor to the to the Amazon ecosystem. And I think you you called it, but like one of the most interesting parts of that announcement is not that, hey, you can order Walmart SKUs uh, through Google Home, um, which certainly is interesting. And by the way, Walmart's up to like 67 million SKUs now. So they're, you know, uh, it's a pretty, pretty deep assortment. Uh, but the most interesting thing is Walmart is sharing first party data with Google. And so what, what that lets Google do is, you know, have a much better insight into what you've purchased in the past and be much more predictive so that your your voice experience can be much more implicit and it's going to accurately guess what size Campbell's soup you buy or what size uh, Ruffles potato chips you buy. And so they, they get that skew right because, you know, voice ordering becomes a disaster when they don't have good data about you and they have to guess which of the hundred variants you might, you might be interested in buying. Uh, yeah. Another uh, quick one that I saw is so, so Google shopping's uh, ad unit is called product listing ads and uh, saw that they are running a new PLA ad unit. Usually the way this works is you go to Google, you search for, um, you know, I don't know, um, screwdriver or power drill or whatever. And that's, you see a bunch of those products from multiple retailers. We saw a unit that effectively was kind of a retailer takeover. So you would search for, I think the one we found was some office supplies. I think it was staplers and they had, uh, the container store where you could just kind of say as a user, you would only see container store staplers in the ad unit. And then there would be the same number of kind of products within there. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Not, you know, Google tests tons of things all the time and we're always looking for new ones. So I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of single retailer ad unit that, that we hadn't seen before. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes if folks are interested in learning more. Yeah, that's totally interesting. Um, another one we saw was that uh, Target uh, uh, seems to have moved off of AWS. And that that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, listeners will remember about a month ago, uh, Walmart launched a, a aggressive initiative where not only did they say we'll not use AWS, but we're encouraging any vendors that, that support us to not use AWS. And now you see Target moving off of AWS. Like the the obvious impetus for all of this is, these retailers don't need to be paying money to a competitor that that competitor can then use to develop new products and offerings that make them, you know, more competitive with uh, Amazon. And so, so you know, this has always been kind of the case, but I think it, it's it's becoming much more apparent that retailers are recognizing uh, it's foolish for them to use any Amazon services, even if they're services that aren't competitive, uh, because they're all, of course. Uh, supporting and funding uh, efforts that are competitive. So if you're uh, Microsoft Azure or Google um, Cloud Platform, like, you know, this is probably great news for you. You've got, you know, a lot of retailers are are modernizing their IT infrastructures and moving to the cloud. And increasingly, it's clear that the one category in the world that's not going to um, adopt uh, AWS as the dominant cloud platform is going to be the retail one. 
Cool. And I, I know we're up against time and we want to make sure we have room for our newsmaker, but, um, you know, uh, longtime listeners will know we are very enthralled with uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. And there was a bunch of news there. Um, so uh, putting on my Star Wars hat, one of the ones that was exciting is as part of the retail launch they, of, of this Force Friday, uh, they've added an AR functionality to the Star Wars app. Uh, and the way this works is you go to your retailer and there will be a display there and you hold up the AR app to a QR code like thing. And then there's a Star Wars character that appears in virtual reality uh, or augmented reality that you can see. Then you can take pictures of them and collect them. Uh, so one of the clever things they've done is there's something like 20 characters, 15 to 20 characters. So as Star Wars people, you, you kind of try to collect these things. And let's say you're going to a Walmart on uh, tomorrow on Force Friday. Uh, well, they're going to rotate characters. The characters you see over the next four or five days will be different. So they're kind of using this this virtual kind of uh, technology to draw people back to the stores um, versus just having them come in one time. So I thought that was kind of an interesting marriage of, of the two worlds that we like there. Yeah, uh, I, I am not surprised at all that you are the earliest adopter. And uh, I'm excited to give it a try myself. Um, another, uh, interesting AR, um, milestone is this week, both Google and Apple released their variants of AR kits, um, which are, uh, essentially their APIs for developing, uh, AR and VR, but mainly AR experiences in their mobile phones. And this is a huge deal. Uh, Google has had some AR technology called Tango, um, but it was really restrictive. It only worked on very specific hardware configurations. And now Google has released this AR kit, which works on the majority of Google hardware out there. So it already works on over 100 million devices. Um, Apple has uh, released a kit that works on basically all the the Apple devices that can run the current operating systems. And this is really likely to usher in a a huge crop of new you know highly functional AR apps in the in the app stores like you look at a successful AR app like uh, Pokemon Go and the developers had to develop it all themselves and now you're getting uh, an API from from the hardware manufacturer that that is much more robust and higher performance and and takes the burden off the programmer to do all that so we we've talked a lot on the show about. Uh, how AR apps are going to be an important part of retail, and you know the the availability of these APIs is is uh, definitely going to be a catalyst for seeing more of those. So I'm excited to see what comes. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, I've seen some indications that there's e-commerce as a category that they're really interested in, um, and. Uh, I think IKEA is a launch partner, and you know um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I'm imagining so Apple's really excited about this. We've got an event coming up in a couple of weeks. You know, what if we had a retailer on stage? I don't think that's ever happened where we had a retailer on stage, kind of talking about new technology. So it'll be interesting to watch and see what the retail implications are. Uh, for sure, and uh, IKEA is a perfect launch partner because they they're one of the retailers that went to the work to program their own custom AR app. Um, that they already had. So I imagine it was super easy for them to sort of uh, adopt and expand it to use the new new kits. 
Yep. Uh, and then the last little tidbit. So a uh, company, when we did our uh, deep dive on ARVR that we talked a lot about is Magic Leap. And uh, the long-awaited patent for their headset was released today or, or had worked itself through the patent pipeline. Um, so that's definitely an interesting read if you're into this whole world. Um, there's there's the, the ARVR world is pretty, pretty split on this. A lot of people think this company is really kind of you know, never going to ship something and that it's really vaporware and uh, other people feel like maybe they're getting pretty close now that this patents up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm eager to find out more. Uh, you know, they've had some patents on the kind of underlying technology before this specific patent is actually about the wearable glasses version. And at least, you know, the pa- patent makes it feel, uh, seem like they expect to be able to, wa- uh, to build a, a pretty lightweight, convenient device, um, that that might be consumer friendly and and that's interesting because a lot of people have feared that the you know technology you know the, like the prototypes at the moment the smallest one is a pretty heavy backpack so the fact that they think they can build it into a set of eyeglasses is is uh, uh very encouraging um and so with that we should turn to our next topic as uh, scott mentioned earlier uh, tonight we are trying a new segment that we're calling digital retail newsmakers so what we're going to do is uh, pick interesting companies in the e-commerce ecosystem that have had some interesting uh, recent news and uh, talk to the folks involved to get the inside scoop so scott who is this week's digital retail newsmaker and we're out Well, Jason, on August 22nd, which was last Tuesday, Kleiner Perkins, which is one of the bluest of blue chip venture capital firms out there, announced a $40 million investment in Toronto-based Tulip. And here's the kicker. All these headlines about Mulligan, all the buzz around e-commerce, Amazon, etc., all read about store closures. Tulip is not an e-commerce company, but it really focuses on providing a mobile application platform to store associates that are in stores. So we are really excited to have Ali Asaria uh, live from Toronto. He is the CEO of Tulip Retail with us here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Sure, sure. Before we jump into it, uh, I wanted to bring up kind of a beef I have with you. <laughs> I was a very early BlackBerry user. Um, and <laughs> from, uh, I think I was, I was on the BlackBerry from definitely like 2000 to 2007, 2008. Super pretty heavy <laughs> user. I think I've got all the way from the little kind of pager kind of form to the bigger ones. Uh, And uh, my favorite app was Brickbreaker, which (laughs) I learned uh, that you had some kind of uh, involvement in. Tell us the backstory on that. Yeah, so there's quite a backstory, but it's funny because like for a lot of my career, I I always always get introduced as the guy who created Brickbreaker. And now it's funny because as times pass, like as time passes, less and less people like remember that game. And so sometimes, sometimes I feel like the rest of my career is all about trying to recapture the like the the excitement that was created from that that one app that I created that was on at one point it was on like 150 million mobile devices right yeah have you ever calculated the hours consumed on on your brick breaker oh man there's actually so many articles written about how like how much wasted time has been like has been lost like from even like senior people like I, I think former president obama used to be a big player I, I feel sort of guilty about it but not too guilty you are single-handedly Facebook. responsible for lowering our gdp <laughs> <laughs> It's an let evil Canadian. To, let me plot. try to fix that. Let me try to correct that. <laughs> yeah, and then Facebook came along, and it's it's kind of it's got to be at least a thousand x the time consumption. So I think you're good. <laughs> yeah, could you imagine the numbers on that? Oh. Uh, 
So obviously, uh, we we have hinted at part of your background, but Ali, why, uh, for our listeners that don't know you, um, why don't you give us the the recap of uh, what your background is and how you came to Tulip? Yeah. So, I mean, my background is, I mean, I studied computer engineering at, at a university called Waterloo here in Canada. Um, and I was really focused on hardware at that time. And I got this neat job at this, this relatively new company called BlackBerry and started working there and eventually worked there full time. But quickly, I mean, after I graduated university, I, I felt like I had to start something. So I started this company, I mean, about 10, 10, 11 years ago called Well.ca. And it was literally just me in a closet um, trying to build an e-commerce site from scratch. I wrote I wrote the code myself and I was packing the boxes myself. And then Well.ca grew to what is now like one of the largest e-commerce companies in Canada. And so in that process for the beginning of my career, I, I literally, I, like when I started Well.ca, I didn't know anything about retail, about merchandising, about warehouse logistics and vendor management. I had to learn all of that from scratch as an engineer. Um, and then that kind of led me to what I'm doing now, which is building software for retailers, having been a retailer for a big part of my career. Cool. What, what, uh, tell us more about well.ca. What did, what did you sell there? So basically well.ca was started with me going to my dad, who was a pharmacist and saying, Hey, can I try to sell the products? that are inside your pharmacy, it eventually grew to being what's, I, I would describe it maybe as like diapers.com for Canada. So it sells everything from baby to health and beauty. Um, it's kind of the largest, largest company in Canada in that category online. Okay. And it sounds like it's still operational. So, uh, is that something you sold or, or what, how did you, um, you know, what, what was the end result of that? So it was kind of interesting. So I was the CEO up to about four years ago. And at that time, we had built so much software there that I actually went to the board and I said, hey, look, there's a ton of value here. I, I want to step down as the CEO of, of this retailer so that I can build a software company out of all this, this great engineering that we, we have here and, and, and the potential for it. And so Tulip actually started with me um, you know, promoting who was then the COO to this, who is now the CEO of, of Well.ca so that I could step down and pull out a lot of the IP. And that's, that's how we began Tulip was me, me kind of saying there's actually maybe more value in this software than there is in the, in, in the rest of the business. Wow. Very cool. Um, and I, I guess in, in, I don't know if irony is the right word. Scott always corrects me with, when I use bad diction, but the, uh, well.ca is, if, as I understand it is, is pretty much a pure play, e-commerce site and then uh it seems like the biggest play for tulip is a is is clearly an omni-channel pitch yeah so it's i mean this is kind of the irony of my career but i think maybe a lot of the lessons make sense right is that uh, so much of my life was focused on trying to compete with physical retailers by building an online uh, like a re retailer in well.ca and in that process, I was competing with all these retailers that I eventually built relationships with. And so I would I would know all the folks at companies like Toys R Us that we now work with and, and some of the other folks. And what I started to realize was that what the thing that I think a lot of us know but haven't figured out how to really capitalize on, which is you know, 90 percent of retail still happens inside these places called physical stores. And there's so much opportunity there, but it feels like 90% of the innovation is all happening on that on 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 the e-com side of on, only on the e-com side of things. So my career is now about kind of trying to take all of that innovation that I learned that I we originally deployed in e-com and try to place that inside stores. Cool. So so four years ago you started Tulip and when did you know you wanted to kind of go the store route or was it kind of you iterated there in some way? Yeah, we, we started right away saying that stores matter and there's a massive opportunity there. But I, I don't think we knew exactly what we were going to do there. The journey for me really sat was with me sitting with a bunch of big retailers that I had built relationships with over the years 
and saying, like, help me understand what are your biggest challenges. And what I started to learn, like just by sitting on the floor inside these stores and talking to heads of stores was that it's really hard to innovate inside physical retail because they're stuck with these old green screen, like, you know, point of sale terminals that were built in the 1980s. And the culture of stores is so different. Sometimes like one of our retailers has 40,000 employees that are all, you know, part time and high turnover. And so you're in this world where there's so much demand from customers to innovate on the retail experience. But when you're a retailer trying to operate these like very complex businesses, it's really hard to adapt with the software and the technology that we have right now. And so I was just like, hey, this is this is all opportunity. This is this is a big, tough, scary, but big opportunity. And so that's kind of what we went after. Got it. So um, so assume I'm an e-commerce guy and I don't know much about stores, which would be a good assumption. Uh, <laughs> give me kind of the the elevator pitch for for Tulip. Uh, and and why stores need to use this? Well, I mean, the, the idea behind Tulip is that 90% of retail is happening inside physical stores. But I think the part that we forget is when we say that's happening in physical stores, it's happening with real human beings going up to other real human beings called store associates and buying through them. And so you have this large job. It's actually the largest job in North America. I didn't know that. Retail store associates. This massive job, which has never had tools before. So we've all experienced as customers the frustration of going into a big retail chain and trying to talk to a store associate that looks like they just were hired the day before, and they can't answer basic questions that you as a consumer can answer on your own phone, right? I can I can sometimes look up inventory and answer more complex you know, product questions on my own phone than I would expect a store associate to be able to answer. And so the opportunity Tulip realized was, you have this massive, massive job category that's never had great tools before. What happens if we actually gave them the tools to be able to answer customers' questions and pull up inventory from other channels and help people transact across e-com and in-store regardless of where that product is? Well, if we could do those things, maybe there's a potential lift in, in the sales that we can do inside stores. And that was the theory when we started. We had no idea like the, the massive opportunity and, and the lift that we could create once we, once we did it. And that's kind of where all the success of these companies come from. Perfect. Uh, that, you know, we, we used to make the joke, like for a long time, store associates weren't even, you know, a common rule in a retail store was that store associates couldn't even use their own phone in the store. <laughs> right. Because, and you know, it's, people, I work with these folks, right? So now I sit on the floor, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I mean, I'm sitting on the floor with these store associates and I started to see the other side of it. You have these often very young people who know how to use technology because now everybody knows how to use a phone. But they're so frustrated because they can't get access to basic information. Sometimes the only computer they have is the point of sale terminal. So if there's people checking out, there is nowhere for them to like research information. Sometimes they're using their own retailer's like mobile app because that's all they have. And so I feel for these folks now. And in even though maybe in my previous career I, I used to kind of make fun of them because I see now what it's like being on the floor inside a store. You want to help customers, but you don't have tools, right? Oh yeah, it's it's uh, believe me, it's a it's a difficult job, and we you know and like originally there were all these rules, we you know nobody wanted the sales associates to have more technology because frankly everyone was afraid they'd be playing a brick breaker on it all day long and not talking to customers. Um, so I guess there's some irony there, but uh, the the you know when customers started walking in with their own phones and having all this information, and the salespeople are completely unequipped. We used to talk about, you know, the sales associates were essentially bringing a knife to a bazooka fight. Like it was <laughs> totally asymmetrical. So uh, it makes perfect sense to start uh, equipping those those sales folks. Um, you you can help me uh, 
as an advocate a little bit because as, as you uh, you may know from listening to the show, uh, Scott doesn't really get the value of retail stores. So you know, Scott <laughs> Scott actually has a drum in his office called Retail Mulligan, and, and he just constantly uh, beats it. <laughs> um, and you know, in fairness to him, like there there are in fact a lot of stores closing, and there are in fact a lot of uh, stores facing some headwinds. But I'd just be you know curious what. What's your general like? So you know your your future is tied to the future of those stores. What 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 do you think is going to happen to physical retail? Right, and and I think you can see I'm a little biased because I've bet my career and my entire company on the idea that stores matter, right? But <laughs> but I think like from our perspective, right? Like you're seeing this, right? We see a lot of the retailers we work with right now as Tulip enters into the retailer to start our work with them. The head of stores has been mandated to close 10% of the stores, but increase sales by 15% in those in the remaining stores, right? And so, what's I think what's happening? I think what we're all seeing is that even if the shift towards like you know e-com goes from 10% to 15%, there's still a massive number of transactions that are going to continue to happen inside stores in a space where there's what like three trillion dollars of retail transactions in North America, and so you have a massive, massive category. On the other hand you know, 5% shift online means lots of jobs lost. And so the world in which Tulip lives is we're working with retailers that are saying, yes, stores will have to close. I mean, we have to correct for the, the right number of stores. But for the remaining ones, that experience that we drive for those customers, we need to, we really need to up our game. And it can't just be by, you know, just lowering prices or, you know, fighting on trying to not have Amazon have access to the channel. It's got to be about creating a differentiable experience inside stores that customers actually want to come to. And that's kind of the world in which Tulip plays, right? Yep. It's, uh, it makes perfect sense. Obviously, like the customer uh, behavior is fundamentally changed as a result of these digital tools that they've now become accustomed to. And like, you know, one of the big examples we always use is ratings and reviews have become super important for customers in making decisions. But none of those digital tools are available in the overwhelming majority of stores, right? And so, a, you know, a super common problem for a retailer is what is the in-store digital experience that brings all those digital amenities to the, the shopper that they become accustomed to from their, their online shopping? And most of the answers to that question are inconvenient. Like they're, they're super expensive and very hard to maintain and, you know, digital signage and digital fact tags and you know, there's there's a lot of baggage attached to doing everything on the customer's mobile phone and having them be kind of heads down in your your store. And oh, by the way, it's super hard to get the customer to download your mobile app anyway. So there are all <laughs> these these headaches, and uh, it 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 seems like providing the the sales associate, which is the one variable in the store you can control, with access to these digital tools to use on behalf of the customer or with the customer, seems like one of the the best solutions to that problem. Right. And I think you see that, right? When people talk about the, the, the end of stores, you look at something like the Apple store, right? The like Apple's in this position where they don't have to open physical stores, but they continue to open them and they're doing phenomenally well, right? And so I think we see this world in which like another retailer we work with, for example, is Bonobos, right? Bonobos started online, did really well, and then started opening physical stores. So you see all these like these folks who are doing well online still opening stores, but the stores feel very different. In terms of experiences, it's different for a lot of our retailers in terms of how you drive a perfect experience for a customer. We have one retailer that's doing something really interesting, right? They actually pull up ratings and reviews through the store associate's device so they can share that with the customer because they know that to the customer that matters. But in addition to that, they'll also pull up pricing from other retailers, right? A big part of the selling process for some of our, for some of the retailers we work with is saying, 
Are you afraid that this product is cheaper on Amazon? Let's go to Amazon together and look at that price because they know that the customer is thinking that in the back of their heads. Right? Wow. So of all the sort of features that can exist on that Tulip tablet, you know, I'm, I'm imagining things like inventory information, product information, you know, uh, customer uh, behavior information, all those sorts of things. Like, it, is there one one experience that you feel like is the overwhelming leader? I, I would just be curious, like, once these things get deployed, like, what's the, the most go-to feature for, for the majority of sales associates? Yeah, there's, there's basically two big experiences that we drive that usually drive the most lift, right? The first one is omni-channel selling. So that's the ability for the store associate to say, whether or not the product you're looking for is in the store in front of us right now, I can sell you any product from online and in the store in one basket. And so that's that's key for the for a lot of the retailers who can't carry all of their inventory in one location. This, the second big thing that we do, which is really interesting for us, we learned a lot about it over the last years, was is what's called clienteling. And basically, for a high-end retailer, um, a lot of their business, um, like a significant percentage of the business for a lot of the, high, the, the best high-end uh, luxury retailers, happens through these one-on-one interactions that they have with customers. And so a lot of what Tulip does in that case is we help retailers write personal emails, like store associates write personal emails and SMS messages to their best customers saying, hey, this just came in. I thought it would look great with that thing that you bought before. I put these these three items together and putting them on hold for you, kind of building that really one-on-one relationship that you can only get with a with a great tool plus a great store associate. Awesome. And uh, so you mentioned uh, Bonobos, which I guess now you get to count Walmart as a customer. It's always a nice upgrade. (laughs) (laughs) Took like five minutes to switch that logo out. Uh, And then, um, you know, uh, what are some of the other retailers that are utilizing your technology? Yeah. So some of the big customers that we're able to talk about uh, include like Toys R Us, which is a big, big deploy for us, right? There's like 800 locations, I think, across North America. Um, a, 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 one of our best customers is Saks Fifth Avenue and that whole network of retailers that are associated with them. We work with retailers like Kate Spade and Michael Kors. Chanel is one of our, our, our good customers, too. So there's kind of a different swath of customers from specialty retailers like like uh, Toys R Us to Bonobos to Chanel. It's been it's been very interesting to see how all of the different retailers work, right? Cool. And then, uh, so as a fellow entrepreneur, I always love to hear the story to the extent you can tell it of fundraising. You know, it's pretty clear that you convinced the the nice folks at Kleiner, uh, to invest in what you're doing so that they're, they're believers. Um, is this the first round of funding you've done? And, um, you know, what, what's the point of view of, of some of the VCs out there that are raised, that are looking, that you're talking to, are they, do you run into some that are like, stores, what are those, or are they all pretty open-minded to that, that kind of pitch these days? Yeah, I think that's like one of the tough kind of side effects to the rise of Amazon and all the challenges we talk about when we're talking about trying to compete with Amazon that I think not everyone knows about is that it is next to impossible to raise money right now um, for a business that is in the e-com category, right? Well.ca experienced that a lot just because VCs are very well aware of kind of how difficult it is to compete at scale when, once you have to go head-to-head against Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that same kind of light, when we started Tulip, I, I started to talk to VCs about what I wanted to do next. And I just was told basically by everyone that I was crazy. They're like, why are you going after this category that's that's going to be massively shrinking? And oh, by the way, retailers are the worst customers. They're so hard to work with. But uh, we, we just felt like there was just too big of an opportunity. And I think a lot of the things that scared people about the category for me kind of indicated that there was actually something there that people hadn't figured out. Cool. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I'm curious about, Ollie, the, 
you you mentioned, for example, the the customer follow up uh, use case, and or I guess maybe I would generically call it like the client telling use case. The um, I imagine there's a, a you know sort of two paths for all those sorts of things. Build that native functionality into Tulip, and so then you know it's it's in your ecosystem and and all that sort of thing. Versus interfacing with all the other tools that those big retailers you just mentioned likely already have in their ecosystem is it like does tulip try to be a, a a complete solution with everything integrated in one big code base or are you having to interface with a lot of other retail systems and how's that working out so i think that's probably the biggest challenge for building tulip is that we're working in a space where you cannot you can't go to a retailer the size of the retailers that we typically work with and say hey, please throw out all of the tens of millions of dollars you've invested in all of your big ecosystem and all of the, you know, the, the side effects of what those things are connected to because we want to swap it out for this other cool app which we just built. And so if you look at Tulip, it, I mean, we're a rather large company now. About half of the company literally just does enterprise integrations. And so a typical project for us with a big retailer will take sometimes six months, maybe more, to just integrate with, you know, 15, 16 um, back-end systems, everything from SAP to IBM and all of the mixture of stuff that they have. So a lot of Tulip's kind of way of working with retailers is to say, hey, we're going to work alongside all of the systems that you've bought already, and we're going to augment them and replace parts of, parts of them when you don't have the right system. But we can't come in and say, please swap everything out, at least not to start with, right? Sure, sure. Uh, one, one other question. I'm, I'm curious about the kind of retailers that are uh, sort of best suited, like I'm of the opinion that that no retailer is purely self-service or purely sales assisted, that like almost every retailer is a spectrum of those two. Um, But there are some some classes of retailer that are much heavier sales assisted. um, And obviously some of your your early customers, like I would put in that category. Um, But then, you know, there's huge swaths of retail that are mostly self-service. And you, you mentioned your biggest deployment was Toys R Us. I would think of them as a mostly self-service environment. So I'm, I'm curious, am I wrong that, that you're a better fit in a sales-assisted environment, or what's, what's the strategy there? Yeah, so when we first started, we said, let's focus on retailers where sales associates really matter, where, where the retailers are saying the store experience and we want to, like, we want to invest in these people. That, that's the category we thought we'd do the best in. But then all of a sudden, we started getting contacted by grocery retailers, Seven um, Eleven type retailers and, and quick service, and all of a sudden we started to realize that I think what we're going to see is that I think personally that every single job in the category, like sales associates and cashiers, all of those jobs will have a mobile device in their hands as part of their job. For some of the less service oriented one, those mobile devices will be focused on you know inventory counting and more of the kind of back end tasks, and more of the service focused ones will be more about. The, the stuff that Tulip's kind of very famous for out, out front and center, you know, sending emails to customers and helping with uh, like product information. But in the end, I'm, I'm of the belief that every category of retail is going to have to arm its associates with a mobile device. It's just part of their job. It's just it's just the reality of the next generation enterprise. Um, and so we started with a lot of these high end folks, but now we're, we're going to be deploying with a lot of the, the retailers that you wouldn't traditionally think of as being sales associate focused. Very cool. One, um, so do you help uh, stores with kind of the omni-channel implementation? So do you get involved with buy online, pick up in store, and ship from store, and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. I, I think like you know, one of my my big beliefs in this in this industry is that we all kind of maybe did a disservice to the industry by over focusing on the word omni-channel because. 
to a lot of the consumers and and practically from an experience perspective, omnichannel doesn't really mean anything until you do something with it, right? And so it's more of a philosophy than it is an, an, an experience. And so Tulip ends up being kind of the thing you do after you've realized omnichannel is important. So for a lot of our retailers, they're like, okay, we want to be able to sell across channels. That's an omnichannel selling experience. But to do that, I need to actually give a tool to perform the sale. And so Tulip is basically everything we do is about omnichannel, but it's kind of the it's kind of maybe the post omnichannel thing that you do. Right? One thing I imagine would be hard, and, and we struggle with this at Channel Advisor, even on the digital side and at the store side, just kind of blows my mind. This may be why you have half your company uh, is on the integration piece, but. Um, you know, the, the buy online, pick up in store, and the ship from store has a really high failure rate. Um, no one really publishes one, but my guess is, you know, somewhere between 5 and 10% based on personal experience. Right. And, and I could imagine you're only as good as the systems you're integrating with. So if I, as a user, am going to a retailer and having that that pretty high stockout experience, it must be frustrating for the clienteling app to be, you know, oh boy, we're going to sell this customer widget X and it's going to be awesome. And then the store associate can't find widget X because the underlying data is bad. How, it, is that a challenge for you guys? And how do you solve that? Yeah, definitely. Right. Like a lot of the retailers we work with, they don't have a perfect view of inventory. A lot of times they don't have photos of most of their products that aren't available online. And so a lot of Tulip's projects end up revealing to the retailer places where they need to now reinvest in terms of improving data quality and, and, and process, right? But one of the good things I think about mobile devices in kind of this real-time world is that you can do a lot of the things quicker now. So you can ask a store associate to go fetch a shoe, and then you can find out within you know two minutes whether they executed on the task. And if not, you can reassign that task to another store. And the other piece I think that none of us really realized until we fully started like working in this space at Tulip was the incentive structure behind that. So one of the important things for Tulip is not just telling a store associate to go grab a product or instructing them to sell something from online, but to make sure that also they get commission for that for that work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then one last question. I noticed you guys uh, seem to be pretty heavily aligned with Apple. So so tell us more about that. And uh, is that a formal alliance? And, and Or is it just kind of you prefer their hardware? How does that work? So this has been kind of one of the biggest surprises of, of, of our company, right, was that when we started Tulip, we started winning all these big retail accounts. And then all of a sudden we got a call from Apple, which we never, never predicted. Was and it Tim Cook? Tim Cook? <laughs> I was his actually his assistant. No, no, okay. it wasn't. Um, and, and so we we got a call from someone at Apple, and uh, basically what happened was that um, we had, I guess, when as retailers had bought Tulip, they had triggered the sale for so many iPads and iPod Touches that we got on their radar, and so that quickly grew to now what is a formal partnership. They're actually we're 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 in a partnership with with Apple where. We actually work with them alongside. So if you look at a lot of the screens on our app, they were actually co-designed at, in Cupertino with Apple. And they come along with us to sales uh, sales opportunities. They actually help supervise projects with us. And so one of the big opportunities of my my life now and my career has been to be able to work kind of hand in hand with some of the best folks at Apple to help kind of tell this shared vision around what is the future of mobility inside retail and in the enterprise, because Apple kind of shares the same vision, right? In their stores, they're like, hey, we're doing so well because we figured out how to innovate on the store experience, partly through giving our sales associates better tools. If we could just show retail, like general retail, that same vision, I mean, we would sell a lot more devices. And so Tulip's kind of part of that. Very cool. So super geek question. Uh, have you been in the spaceship? And no, I've been looking at it. I want to go. Actually, we have appointments coming up that I think we'll finally go there. But I've been meeting just outside of that campus for so long. 
Okay, we'll have to do a special uh, edition of the spaceship edition of the show, so you can give us a, a report on on what it's like inside of there. We're we're not all meeting at the the iPhone announcement on the twelfth. Oh yeah, it's gonna that's going to actually the thing. It's going to be beamed from there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Steve Jobs Theater, is, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's what I heard. That's what yeah. I heard. One of the things that's interesting to me about the Apple partnership is um, I, I've spent a lot of time doing technology inside of retail stores. And for a long time, I would have said, oh, you know, st- like consumer technology like Apple stuff is great for proof of concepts and quick prototyping. But when you really want to scale it, it's totally inappropriate for the store environment, that it's it's not hardened and people are going to want to steal them and it's really hard to lock them down and the, you know, it's, it's hard to keep them charged. And, you know, there, there, there are a million, like, frankly, very valid reasons why it's not that, that hardware isn't perfectly suited for the retail environment, but I've completely lost that argument and long ago gave it up because it just, it just seems like the, the argument that, Hey, the store associates already know how to use the consumer technology and the consumer technology is so much cheaper and more ubiquitous. And frankly, like when any of those bad things happen to it, it's just cheaper to replace it than it is to buy a, a uglier, more clunky industrial tablet that costs five times as much up front. Is that is that what you're finding or do any of your clients use industrial hardware for the for this stuff? Yeah, if you, if you asked me that same question, I would have been in the same camp as you, right? I would have said, right, you have to focus on an enterprise-hardened hardware. Apple wasn't designed for the consumer. That's what I thought five years ago. And so if you want to kind of hint at what I think is the secret long-term plan for Tulip is that we believe that that mistake that we all made in terms of the, the consumerization of the enterprise, right, the influence that end workers have in terms of what type of hardware, and we hope what type of software is deployed inside the enterprise well, that, that prediction that we all had was so wrong that there's a massive, massive opportunity now. And we think all of software in the enterprise, including obviously retail, is going to change in the same way that, that hardware is, where we, we all mispredicted how, how strong I think a lot of the legacy thoughts we had around what software looks like in big companies and in the same degree hardware. So what we're seeing, to answer your question specifically, is Apple's kind of just won in retail, even though um, people didn't predict Partly based on, you know, people thought it was maybe it was too expensive at the time or it wasn't the right thing for the enterprise. But all of those predictions ended up being wrong. It's definitely the right solution. And then what happens is you have an ecosystem of software and hardware that's all built around this 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 hardware. And it's, now it's impossible to unseat, I think, Apple in this space. Yep. Yep. So I, I have a feeling that we're not seeing a lot of new investments in Symbol and NCR and all the, <laughs> those, those guys um, as a result of that. I'd be curious, though, is the natural progression of that trend... Um, not that there won't always be some dedicated hardware for solutions like you, but could you imagine uh, a blended solution where where there's dedicated tulip tablets in the store and there's certain sales associates that have that, but that the tulip app is also available for employees to install on their own hardware to sort of expand the footprint, bring your own devices? Yeah, so... Yeah, so a lot of our retailers talk about bringing your own devices, and there's there's like legal and compliance issues around that for in North America that we have, we talk through. But definitely, all of our retailers have on their roadmap kind of a vision of what can and can't the store associate do on their own device. It's different, right? Because there's privacy issues. You're not obviously going to allow them to pull up any customer's record and that sort of thing. But there's definitely tools we want to build to give store associates that they can access anywhere they are. Yep, and uh, that that does does trigger an interesting thing. So you you potentially on the on the store provided hardware have proprietary information about the customer 
Um, and I imagine there's a fine line. Like you don't necessarily just want to make everything uh, that a retailer knows about that customer transparently available to the sales associate in the store when a customer might see it. Yeah, actually, when we started um, with one of our best retailers, it's like a high-end fashion retailer, they started telling us about user stories that we needed to capture. And part of part of those stories is the, the idea that, hey, we have the addresses and phone numbers of all of these famous celebrities in North America. We can't just even have any of our store associates, you know, type in a famous person's name and pull up their phone number. And so uh, like Act Tulip actually has built in privacy tools to make sure that that sort of stuff is locked down. It's it's crazy when you start thinking about the information that you could have access to, right? Yeah, I uh, I did a project with a a large um, chain of of wine and alcohol stores, and uh, they they were deploying a clienteling solution, and they wanted what uh, I don't know if it's popular anymore, but what used to be popular is this RFM scoring, recency, frequency, monetization score for each customer, how much stuff they buy, how often they buy, how valuable they are. But they very specifically didn't want they wanted that to be a relative number. They didn't want an absolute number because mm. they, they, they didn't want customers seeing like how much scotch they were consuming, for example, <laughs> which makes perfect sense. Um, so where yeah, do you think sure. all this is going? Is it, like, do you see a further evolution or do you, do you see like, is the main play to just uh, expand the, the footprint for the kinds of solutions you're offering today or, or are the experiences going to get even better? I think like for me, the hardest part of my career now is sitting now inside retail and seeing all of this opportunity and wanting to go after all of it, but also trying to stay focused. Right. And so I look, I look at the stores as these massive opportunities to pivot for us. I, the, the thing I see across all of the retailers I talk to every day is this shared vision around the future of the store becoming an event and experience center. Right. And so what I push a lot of the retailers that I work with, to think about is not just about improving their stores and allowing omnichannel transactions, but to try to build a location that customers would actually pay to go to, right? That should be the bar. It should be so awesome that it feels like you're going to Disneyland or, you know, there's places like the Disney store, the like the Crayola experience store, where you actually have to, you know, reserve a spot to get in there. And so uh, what I think is going to be the future of the store is that there are going to be these brand experience centers that will be so great that you actually, people will stop criticizing stores and see them for what they really truly can be, which is this really awesome, fun way to experience brands. Whether or not you buy in those stores doesn't really matter. It's as long as there's a way to facilitate the transaction um, and connect it to that store experience in some way. Right? I think that makes perfect sense. And Ollie, that is going to be a great place uh, to end it because it has happened again. We've uh, perfectly wasted an hour of our listeners' time. <laughs> uh, so we certainly want to thank you for joining us and wish you all the best with Tulip. We look forward to following your future success. And just a reminder, listeners are always welcome to continue the conversation on our Facebook page. And for sure, uh, if you like today's show, uh, jump on iTunes and give us that, that five-star review. Uh, we, we greatly appreciate them, and it's super important. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Sally. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. <laughs>